0: Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, President and Editor-in-Chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today, and we'd love to hear what you think. This is. This Week in Global Development. I've got a couple of colleagues who who are going to join me for this discussion. Uh, Anna Goel is with us, our managing editor. Hey, Anna.
1: Hi, Raj. Great to be here.
0: And Adva Saldinger, who is, of course, a senior reporter here at DevEx. Hey, Adva. Hi, Raj. Great to be with the two of you. Um, I'm actually in Los Angeles right now, uh, attending the Hilton Humanitarian Symposium, which is the big annual do that they put on here in Los Angeles uh, where they celebrate the winner of the Hilton Humanitarian Prize. This year, it's the One Acre Fund, um, which you know has actually I've seen it growing up from being a really small social enterprise started by some university students, and now serving millions of smallholder farmers across East Africa. So it's pretty remarkable to see. And I'll be on stage very shortly talking about the power of storytelling and narratives to to create action in the humanitarian space. So lots happening here in Los Angeles, and I think. Not so far away, Adva, you're in uh, in the Bay Area, right, at SOCAP? That's
2: right. Yeah, SOCAP wrapped up yesterday evening, but I've been in San Francisco um, the the last three days and had some really interesting conversations also with social entrepreneurs and impact investors about um, some, some trends in the space, and, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that um, and I'm happy to go into that now or later.
0: Yeah, no, I want to hear about SOCAP. I think people are interested to to know what, sure. what you're hearing on the ground there.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things that emerged for me this year, that there is a push and an effort um, to create what they're calling a child lens for investing um, so we've seen in the past a real push around gender lens investing. We've seen the emergence of a refugee lens for investing. And so one of the things that that stood out to me, and there were several sessions about it, and UNICEF USA has done some um, work to try to help build the field to create, um, you know, a sort of framework around what would child lens investing look like? Um, and basically, I think, where this comes from is that actually a lot of investments that are made impact children, but there isn't intention around how that impact happens. So how do you design projects in a way that have, you know, benefiting children in mind um, from the start? So how how are people incorporating that in their investment strategies? How are they looking to, um, you know, invest in you know, on the one hand, in companies that have good practices that support families and children.
0: I, I wonder how much of that is, you know, marketing and, the, you know, to be cynical, like how much of it is taking yeah. things that would already get funded and, and adding a new, yeah. you know, and, a new and, label on it in the hopes of so attracting new investors or how much yeah. of it really does ultimately drive a change in the behavior of the yeah. company seeking this investment to say, you know, we're going to invest in childcare for our employees or, um, yeah. or that sort of thing.
2: And, and you can bet that I asked that question, of course, <laughs> to folks. Um, and 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 you know, I think the answer is that some of this might not be new money, but it might, but it might actually be pushing those companies to develop better policies, right? So it's investments that might be happening anyway, but now they're going to the table and they're saying, in addition to you know, you need to show that you're going to have more women in leadership positions on your board or in in management. Um, you also need to be having better policies around exactly childcare, et cetera, um, or family leave and things like that that have been shown to be beneficial for children. So some of it might just be, you know, sort of redirecting existing funds, but I think there is also a hope that this will push some new money into sort of um, areas that are explicitly. Benefiting children and sort of having a child first mentality.
0: I think particularly now, right? You see what happened in the ESG space, yeah. which is obviously a much larger space than the impact investing space, and it touches you know more retail investors and and big pension funds and others. You know, there, there's been a huge backlash to ESG, um, and I think some US. of it is just in the U.S. Yeah, mostly in the U.S. You're right. Europe is a very different story, but some of it is justified when you see ESG funds and. You know, Products that are labeled as ESG, and then you look inside and see, wait, is this funding tobacco and energy and all kinds of other things? Yeah. And you can sort of, you know, contort the the label ESG in a lot of different ways to justify almost anything. You know, ESG's come under huge backlash, and and I guess for proponents but, but of I, impact I, I really, investing, you don't want to you don't want to land in that kind of a soup either.
2: Of course, and, and impact investors are thinking about that. Are thinking about how do you protect against that? I think. ESG has also become very political in the U.S. So I think a lot of the backlash is driven by, by politics in the U.S. Right? It's it's about not wanting businesses to think about anything other than the bottom line. Um, even though most businesses are thinking about issues like climate, for example, because it actually impacts on their um, bottom line. But I think right. it is really ultimately important... a bottom
0: line issue. It's just a question of right. time frame, right? All of these are bottom yeah. line issues.
2: I think one of the things that um, sort of stands out to me. I had a couple conversations this week is that then it's about veracity and data. So how do you create the right standards so you can look at an ESG investment and say, like, is this, you know, greenwashing or is this actually an investment that's going to have the impact? And I think that, you know, the impact investing space has, you know, had a big evolution in how it, you know, measures and manages impact. And there's a lot of frameworks and standards out there. I think there's people trying to do really interesting things with technology to make some of those, you know, frameworks and standards easier to implement. Also for the people who are receiving that funding, um, and I think, and I think, you know, there are questions to be asked. I had some conversations with folks around sort of gender lens investing, and um, you know, the DFIs have had uh, development finance institutions have had a big push th- through their 2x initiative. But Publish what you fund recently um, put out a study. They wanted to sort of assess 2x, and what they found is that the data is so bad that you can't even really tell if these investments are having a positive or negative impact. Right. Um, And so I think there are questions about what are the standards? Are they the right standards? And and as you look to sort of build a certification around gender lens investing, can you make sure that those, you know, the existing standards, if they're going to continue to be the standards, either evolve or that there really is data to back up that they're having an impact Um you know, perhaps beyond, you know, saying, you know, there's women ownership or there's women on boards, et cetera.
0: Right. Right. I mean, if you, if you want this sector to grow, a key thing is having the data that shows what the, what the impacts are, not just the financial returns, but the actual impact. Uh, And I want to get you in the discussion in a second, but just one one last question here on SOCAP, you know, right now I would imagine it's pretty tough to be an impact investor, right? That the space that we're in and that SOCAP is so representative of, um, really grew up in an era of zero interest rates and cheap money. And so it was, in a way, easier because you could argue to investors, look, we can get you the same kind of returns that you're getting through traditional commercial investments. And we also get you a social or environmental impact. Um, But now interest rates are high and money is tight. And I would think that that might affect the ability of these funds to, to fundraise. Some of the investors I've talked to have said, you know, there's a certain runway, and they're kind of okay for now because they raised money during the zero interest rate period. But, but you know, that we've now had higher interest rates for you know several months, and I guess I wonder what the mood was like there at SoCap, and did you feel any of the kind of broader macro uh, economic impacts happening, you know, affecting the way people are looking at the space?
2: I mean, it's not like people are walking around super depressed, but these issues are top of mind, right? And I think a really good example is I had a couple conversations with people, people who are raising sort of blended finance funds, where they're not actually seeking commercial rates of return. But in the past, you could make a case, okay, if you're, you know, just buying like a US Treasury note, the yield on that was actually quite low. And so this would be better, you know, their investments would be better than that. But at, in the past, where they could maybe get you know, these are funds that are getting capital from multilateral development banks, or development finance institutions, maybe they would get, you know, a loan at um, 3% or 5%. Now, that's like, seven to 10%. So how do how do their business structures work in an environment where money is more expensive? And then how do you, you know, figure out how to either pass that on to the companies they're investing in or figure out how to, you know, reduce some of that risk. So I think there are real challenges. I was talking to um, a Ghanaian social entrepreneur who was saying that it's, you know, I mean, it's not just interest rates. Like, yes, cap- capital is more expensive. I think it's going to take a lot longer for funds to raise money now. Um, that's definitely a thing that we're starting to see, that the sort of timeline to raise that money is, is getting longer. Um there's also a bit of a move then, you know, back to fundamentals, like your business model, your you know, capital plans have to be really sound to get money today in, in a way that is maybe more true than it was um a couple years ago. Um, but this Ghanaian founder said a big issue is also currency risk. You know, we've seen the Ghanaian CD really devalued in the past year, and so he said suddenly you know, they were they were profitable, but now suddenly sixty percent of that is wiped out because they're primarily um, borrowing or getting capital in US dollars or euros and, and the currency value dropped that much. And that's something that is is not, you know, something they can manage because it's a it's a macro issue. So I think and, and that's, you know, this issue of currency risk and how do you develop products to help, you know, protect against that so that investors will still go into these markets, but also to help spread the risk from entrepreneurs who are who are trying to you know to work to create products and services that um, that will address some of these development challenges so I think that's another an, another issue that's going to be really important to watch and see how some of these you know development finance institutions try to innovate around that or look to reduce some of those risks
0: yeah that's definitely a space to watch I know something the World Bank has been called on to to look at as they try to you know, increase the amount of private sector investment alongside their work um, is to look at the currency risks that investors often feel like they can't sufficiently hedge in places like Ghana and therefore just stay out of the market. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at Devex.
2: If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to Devex Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevX Newswire, we keep you up-to-date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today.
0: We had a whole bunch of other headlines this week um, and just you know, listening to this issue of how do you attribute uh, what really counts as impact investing? Or are we just kind of taking things that we were already going to do and now calling it, you know, child uh, lens investing it makes me think of the story that Vince Chadwick um wrote this week about mm-hmm. the EU's global gateway maybe you could just clue our listeners into to what that story is all about cuz it's one we've been following for quite a while now
1: yeah, that's exactly the story that, that came to mind as well. Of course, now, I have to say, initially, when I heard child lens, I thought it meant investing, explaining it for children like me, <laughs> but I guess it's a different childlike lens, but uh, I won't get into my shortcomings on finance. But, um, but yeah, so the Global Gateway, it's basically the EU's answer to China's Belt and Road initiative. It wants to show that it's competitive. Uh, doesn't outright say it, obviously, but that's pretty much what it is. Um, they're prepping dozens of kind of flagship projects for 2024, and Vince uh, saw a draft of those projects, and they're pretty heavy on on climate, energy, transport, not so much on traditional poverty alleviation measures, and so that's led critics to accuse the, the EU of wanting to use the global gateway to kind of serve its own interests by securing supplies of renewable energy and critical minerals, um, etc. So this is kind of the, that's one big concern. And then the other major concern, as you said, and this relates to the Uh, you know, the concerns about uh, labeling and impact investing is that this is just a rebranding of projects that were already underway for many years. Uh, Some of these projects date back to, I think, 2017. So the concern is that this is kind of a flashy new project and this and that, but it's really just recycling old money and that the gateway will become this kind of vague catch-all for any new development project that comes along and that these projects will again be much more in EU interest than other countries'
0: interests. Yeah, it's it's so tricky to kind of blend between what's real and what is sort of marketing. I mean the, the goal here is the Belt and Road Initiative, which has been out there for several years now and has spent something like a trillion dollars, is to say, well, the EU has an answer to it. But on the on the one hand, I talked to some sources who say, why do you want to copy the Belt and Road Initiative? It's not a success. Um, and so maybe you do want to do exactly what the EU you know, is being accused of doing in this case, which is just dressing up stuff they're, they're already doing that maybe makes more sense. Um, on the other hand, you know, you could argue that some of the things the EU is funding here are pretty critical and you, they need to have a response and an alter- provide an alternative to countries who otherwise would take you know, significant lending from China, which is increasingly a, a big geopolitical rival with Europe. So, you, know, you can kind of see it from all sides. But I think Vince does a great job, as always, in trying to break down what's really behind this initiative. You know, what is it actually? What's actually in there? Once you look past the kind of flashy, uh, the flashy announcements. And this is something that was first put out in 2021. And he's looking at the projects that are likely to be funded in 2024. And just asking some basic questions, like, well, what's really new? Um, and, you know, is this really aligned with the EU's development strategy? Or is it more like, you know, climate initiatives that really benefit the whole world? For example, he talks about an aviation fuel initiative, you know, to try to make aviation fuel more sustainable. And uh, that's not something that's necessarily targeted to the poorest countries, right? A lot of the benefit of that is is really global and will directly come back to to serve the EU's interest in, in helping climate uh, mitigation. So... Uh, anyway, it's an interesting story worth and worth taking a look at. What other stories this weekend have caught your attention?
1: Well, Adva's own story, actually, and she can probably um, give us a better sense of it than I can, but basically talking about the International Finance Corporation's efforts to invest in the creative industries, uh, so like music, film, fashion, sports, um, Mokhtar Diop has apparently done... Twenty podcasts with some actors, um, and Advan did a great job, kind of breaking down uh, what the motivation here is. It's a nascent interest industry, excuse me, but uh, holds a lot of potential. But it's not quite uh, clear yet if the IFC has really done more than a handful of investments, and what. You know whether this potential can be realized because there are a lot of key roadblocks. So not to put you on the spot, Edvob, but if you wanted to to tell us more, I thought it was a really fascinating story on what the IFC is up to.
2: Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about the story. And I I have to admit that um, before starting to report this one, I really didn't know a lot about the creative industries. Um, So it's been um, really interesting. I mean, one of the beauties of being a reporter is that you get to learn a, a lot. And so, um, spending some time learning about sort of this industry and how it works has been really interesting. Um, yeah, and then and then really looking at you know I, I was thinking back a couple years ago I did an interview with Mokhtar where he said one of his priorities is getting IFC to really invest in places it hadn't before. Um, and one of those areas was the creative industries. And I think if you look um, at the statistics, it's something like globally, like three percent of GDP comes from these industries. That's not insignificant. Um, And it's the biggest employer of like any industry of youth between the ages of something like 18 and 25. So particularly when you look at a continent like Africa, which has a huge youth population that need jobs. Um, It makes sense why IFC. And in fact, um, you know, IFC is later to the game than some other, you know, institutions. The African Development Bank several years ago also decided it's going to make some big investments in, in fashion, but also... Um, in film, and the African um, Export-Import Bank, Afrexim, is also invested in the space, as well as the French government. And so we're seeing sort of a pickup in folks who are investing in the creative industry space. But I I did want to do a deep dive into sort of how IFC is trying to set up the program. Um, I I think there are some questions about whether this podcast is, um, you know, more of a Vanity project from Akhtar is something he enjoys doing. He's a musician himself. And you can sort of tell that in some of these interviews, he's talking about guitar riffs that he enjoyed. Um, But it's not, you know, it's certainly entertaining. I think they see it as a way to bring in a new audience. Um, But from some of the folks I talked to, they could also do a better job of getting out the word that they're actually looking to make investments. I talked to um, a Nigerian uh, film producer who's like very familiar with IFC and he's gotten money from some of these other, um, you know, in development finance institutions who are investing in the, in the um, sector in Africa, but he didn't know that IFC was an option and he's raising funds now, you know, and he's, he told me a funny story, which is that um, several years ago, he actually took some photos that are now hanging in the IFC office in Lagos. So, so he's quite familiar with the institution, but didn't quite know that they were doing this investment. So I think they've got a ways to go in getting the word out. And they have only made about five investments. And, um, you know, I pushed them on some of them. Their first sort of big investment that they announced back in June was in a UK headquartered company to expand their operations in India. But this company already had, I think, 7,000 employees in India. So I said, you know, what, what's the value add of IFC? Can't they just raise commercial, you know, commercial capital? But... They said the way they structured that deal meant that they actually brought in a lot of commercial capital alongside their um, their lending. So um, yeah, I think I think was quite an interesting story to work on. I think there's you know additional interesting stories. It's a space where not a lot of investors actually understand how to invest into these industries. Um, But if you get people who do understand the you know project cycles in the fashion industry, for example, or how. Um, you know, I said, well, isn't it really risky to invest in a TV series, for example? And it turns out that most TV series aren't produced until they're sold. So if you understand how that system works, then you can build financial products um, that make sense, that can help accelerate these industries. So um, it, was, it was a really interesting story to work on. I hope um, people read it. And, and I think there's space to for us to write more about these industries and also to continue to hold um, IFC accountable for, you know, how they're spending their attention and money and, and, and what they're actually doing and, and follow up to a big commitments.
0: I thought there were a couple of interesting things that popped out to me. Like, you know, at first I saw the the total amount that IFC has already invested in this area is $114 million. and I thought, well, that's not so bad, you know, because part of the critique in the story is that they haven't moved that quickly. Uh, but then when you dig a little bit deeper into the piece, you realize, well, I guess $75 million of that was that one example of a UK company expanding in India. So... You know, there's only a few other projects and they're relatively small. And I guess that's part of the challenge here for IFC is that the deal sizes are kind of small. You know, IFC is a big multi-billion dollar institution. They need to do, you know, a smaller number of larger deals. They don't have a massive staff. And so the truth is a lot of these projects in the creative space might be smaller. And that makes it a little harder. And so they might need to give money to intermediary institutions, you know, venture capital funds or banks, And get them to on invest, you know, into smaller initiatives in the countries where they operate. But then there was one uh, person that you quoted in in the story talking about, well, that's been tried in Nigeria. And what ends up happening is people borrow that money cheaply. It's targeted for the creative industries, but actually use it for other businesses that are more established and less risky. Uh, Anna, any other stories that we published this week that you wanted to highlight for our listeners?
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, We've, as always, got a lot, but there's um, one saga we've been following um, that our senior uh, reporter, Stephanie Beasley, has been chronicling, which is the layoffs at Open Society Foundations, which, of course, generates a huge amount of interest, both in the world of philanthropy and and outside of it. And the layoffs are pretty massive. Uh, It's about 40% of the staff that's left over from a previous round of cuts, which is about, I believe, 800 people. Um, but there's a union that represents the U.S.-based workers of OSF, and they've wanted to meet with um, Alex Soros, the head, of, uh, the head of the board and the board itself, but they've so far been rebuffed. Um, they've put out an open letter with their concerns in terms of turning full-time roles into fixed-term contract positions that they fear could have the effect of, of union busting, which OSF leadership um, denies. And I think what's interesting here, especially in Stephanie's reporting is while a lot of people are critical of these layoffs, um, they do have some supporters. Um, Some people have pointed out that, you know, OSF is going to shift from being uh, like an operating foundation to one that primarily distributes grants. So you do need fewer people for that. Uh, although the opponents say you do need people who have still have that institutional knowledge in order to disper- disperse those grants, and it's a very unique situation. Stephanie quoted a few people where, um, you know, who who reflect on on kind of how unusual it is because obviously when it comes to unions, you have pushback when it comes to layoffs and temporary contractors. Um, but this is really more about. Pushing for transparency for the grantees, for instance, for the timelines of these these plans that kind of remain very opaque. Um, and just in general, kind of pushing back on how they feel that OSF as an organization is being dismantled. So it goes really beyond kind of these immediate labor issues to this big picture of what is the future of this massive philanthropic uh, foundation?
0: Yeah, I think one thing kind of unites the two sides. Uh, To me, it's kind of an interesting thread is that, you know, the the folks who are promoting this major reform at OSF, it's Alex Soros, Mark Malik Brown, who I've had a chance to interview multiple times uh, recently on stage, and and others who I talked to who aren't even directly at OSF, but in the broader philanthropy community, the people who are promoting this are saying, look, democracy is backsliding. Authoritarian governments are on the rise. Um, the world needs a highly effective OSF because OSF is the biggest, by far, funder in this space, and we can't afford to have OSF be anything but highly focused, highly strategic. And so, there's a good argument that look, if they were, you know, spread way too thin, doing lots of small grants but that don't really add up to anything, they need to change that. And so, you know, I hear people saying this is the right thing. On the other hand. I think a lot of the reason it's such a backlash from the people who work there is, you know, in the private sector and business people get laid off all the time and it's a very sad thing but it happens and when it does it's usually well the business isn't doing well right the company is losing money and so you can sort of depersonalize it in a way you can say it's not about my work uh, you know as an employee here this is just things happen in the market and the business OSF isn't losing money you know OSF still has plenty of money uh, it's not really about that. What it kind of says, maybe underneath it, and I think this is why it's so personal for people who are getting laid off is, wait, what was was the work I was doing not effective? Was I not saving democracy? You know, and so it's. I think people are taking it really personally, um, and I can understand why because of the importance of OSF. So I think that you know, in any other context, these kinds of layoffs, this kind of reform, would still matter and be important, be a news story. It's just that. OSF is such a critical institution in such a critical space in the world right now that it takes on, you know, another level of importance.
1: And then just the fact that it's always been a lightning, a political lightning rod um, and you have George Soros and now the big handover to Alex Soros, who has openly said that he's going to be more political. So you can imagine this is going to be even more of a hot potato, everything that they do. Um, And as you said, they do still have money. It's a $25 billion foundation, Um, everything that they do is going to come under the
0: microscope. Yeah, sure. And there's a strong sense in people I talk to in the democracy community that, look, there's a lot of democratic backsliding all over the world, but the really big moment is going to be just one year from now, right here in the United States, when we have a presidential election that likely will have former President Trump on the ballot. And the idea that OSF wouldn't be anything but in full fighting form, ready for that moment, uh, would give people a lot of pause because I think there's a lot of folks in that work in that community who see this as pretty existential.
1: And that's a whole separate podcast talking about 2024.
0: <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean so much is going to come come from that. Of course we didn't even talk about the fact that the US Congress now has a new speaker and you know what some of the implications are around that. Uh, but I think we're running out of time. So I just want to bring Adva back in it if your connection is better and just say are there any other stories or final things you want to leave us with?
2: To this point of, of unions, it's something I've been thinking about because we've actually seen, and this isn't a story that we wrote this week, but it's something that I've been having conversations with. We've actually seen a resurgence of sort of popularity of unions within U.S. government agencies as well. Um, the Millennium Challenge Corporation has, has unionized in the past year. Um, I know my colleague wrote about that. And, and the uh, Development Finance Corporation has you know, seen massive growth in its union. So that's also an issue to watch within Sort of the US government space that this OSF uh, story made me think about. Um, but just one other story quickly, I think I, I would point out from this week. Um, my colleague Jenny Lee Ravello wrote about um, a WHO race um, for the regional office of the Western Pacific and how for the first time that office uh, is going to have actually a Pacific Islander lead it. And I think that that's, um, you know, I think it's, you know, something like 75 years it hasn't happened. Um, so I think that that's just maybe an interesting note to to end on. Um, it's a story worth looking at. It sort of looks into um, this, this new leader, but sort of an important piece of, of representation in, in that region.
0: Absolutely. I, and Dr. Piukala is an interesting guy in that you know he grew up on this tiny little island of Babau um, in Tonga. He was one of ten kids. His parents were farmers. You know he really grew up the hard way, and now he is leading, what is the largest and most diverse regional office of the WHO? It's a big—it's a big achievement, uh, and for somebody who, in just just a few years ago, was running a hospital, uh, and then found his way to politics, became a minister of health, and now has this much larger platform. So, I'm excited to to hear uh, probably Jetty interview him on a DevX stage coming up uh, before too long. Uh, but congrats to him, and it is an important story for us to cover. Uh, Anna, any final thoughts from you?
1: I, I agree. That's actually a great profile. I mean, can you imagine 10, 10 kids he had to work, walk miles to get to school? Uh, so, hopefully, people will will check that story out. We've got also, um, since we didn't talk much today about Africa, I would encourage readers to look at Sarah Jerving's um, profile somewhat of the, it's called the Maputo Pro- Protocol. It's celebrating its 20th year. And it's actually the, first international treaty to explicitly recognize abortion as a human right in circumstances. And as you can imagine, that makes it very, very controversial. And Sarah really does a great rundown of where countries in Africa are um, on adopting this protocol. And it gets to the larger um, issue of abortion access in sub-Saharan Africa. So uh, that uh, just a quick note, I would encourage readers to take a look at that one as well.
0: Absolutely. I learned a lot from that story, including like how it works across many different countries that say that when they sign an international treaty, that supersedes their local laws. And other countries, they sign an the international treaty, they still have to legislate something aligned with that international treaty in their national laws. So it's a really interesting piece. And uh, I learned quite a bit from it. It's been great to talk to Anna Gowell and Edvas Allinger, uh, my colleagues, and really appreciate all of you who listened in. Uh, every week, we're here at This Week in Global Development. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Raj. Thanks, Edvald. Thanks, Raj.
0: This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.